0: The issue we have in recording
1: <laughs> You're like here we go again, shiny.
0: no, 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 the only issue we have is that um I cannot <laughs> modulate the levels of what I get and you get in your headphones. I can only give you the mix in the headphones is uh, the thing,
1: okay, gotcha,
0: and I need to unless I'm not fully understanding the gear, which is totally possible. <laughs> I, I need to make sure that the levels are good going in. And then what comes out to the headphones, I can only like do the master mix. I can't, okay. I can't yeah, like yeah. do that. Okay. So it's really important that like our levels are good going in. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, you know, so this little box that I bought here, this will probably all get cut from our thing. Yeah, maybe, ho- not. maybe not. Maybe hopefully,
1: hopefully. bore them to
0: death. But this this box I bought here, and I got it like a couple of months ago. Um, they just released an update for it, which is a paid update because this is serious shit. Okay, but it's you can probably hear it in the headphones right now. It's got like live noise cancellation, so usually I can always hear that that damn fan noise coming through your mic. Oh, but
1: now with that it's not going to be there yeah that's great and that means because usually
0: because usually i need to go in and take that and then like sample that noise and remove it from your mic and that takes some time and all that bs but now i can just take it straight out of the okay
1: great that's excellent super interesting i'm really wow i'm really happy to hear that
0: (laughs) anyway (laughs) whatever makes life easier so anyway yeah tomorrow is uh it's a holiday. Yeah. And, it, you know, and, and, um, today and I'm, tomorrow's the third. I mean, for our dear listeners, so they don't get confused because they may be listening to this on the third, even though. So this will come out tomorrow? Um, it might come out tonight.
1: Oh, wow. That's to be amazing. We'll
0: see. But so tomorrow is the third and tomorrow is a holiday, but you're confused by this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, I thought that the day for July 4th was July 4th. So it's weird that they celebrated a the day before because, in, you know, it's about Independence Day.
0: Right. But surely this has happened to you before. Uh, has it? Is this the first time in your life in your 38 years that the 4th of July has fallen on a weekend? <laughs> but so ju- but
1: so if July 4th was on a Wednesday, we would have Wednesday off, correct? Right? Correct. Now that we have July 4th on a Saturday, we have the day before off?
0: Yeah, do you think this is decadent? Like It's do you think-
1: decadence. I think this is
0: the greatest generation, when they stormed the beaches of Normandy, they didn't get Fridays
1: Look, off. It's a coddling of the American mind. We yeah. want things easy and we want to cut corners. So instead of celebrating something on the actual day, we're like, oh, Americans need an extra day off, so let's do it the day before. I think that and it, it's interesting because right before I came here, I was reading um, this, this essay in Foreign Affairs, How Do Great Nations Fall? And it's really about this. It's about... Um, not realizing when a great nation is is sort of on the verge of destruction. I think also, you know, and he's talking about the Soviet Union in this context that um, it's really hard to know when you're about, when it's about to happen. Right. Um, and so the piece was just basically talking about how do we sort of think ahead of ourselves where we train our minds to look for signs where signs may not be obvious. And this also, I think, relates to Ross Douthat's work on, um, uh, the decadent society and all that also. So I was just, I was home, um, in Pennsylvania with again, my parents and again brother again, family, yeah. what can I say? Family, Yeah, family bonding. And, um, one thing we talked about, it, it bothered my brother a little bit. You know, I was talking about how it, dogs really annoy me and white people or as they're known now white people yeah white people yeah, yeah. <laughs> i i i find that so funny for people who don't know apparently people are spelling white people as white people which is w y p i p o i don't yeah. know the full i don't either
0: i've I, noticed it i don't fully <laughs> i haven't i haven't bothered to investigate quite frankly
1: it's it's probably some conspiracy yeah um but how like white people and their dogs and I was just making the point to my brother, hey, like this is a sign of decadence where you have stores and shops that are made for dogs. yeah, and you treat dogs like human beings and they wear clothes and costumes. Right. and there's even something we saw in Philly. It's like um a swim club for dogs. This I have not seen before. It's not even bathing. It was actually portrayed as a club. yeah, like almost like dogs are socializing and they're swimming in the pool together. and I'm like, this is really the anthropomorph, anthropomorph whatever that word is, yeah. of dogs. Yeah, I guess they are beings, but to make them into like human beings, and I just felt like I, I it's was sad. Being,
0: it's sad, I, but you I, don't like dogs. I mean, that's the other thing. I remember this. this I, I learned this about you. I think early on in the friendship, you're actually, or is you just you don't like white people with dogs? <laughs> Which is it? <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's not part of our culture. Yeah. So, um, I remember this, this was an early thing I discovered and I was like, oh, edgy. <laughs> now it's not edgy anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Disliking yeah. white people with dogs and stuff. But your brother wasn't cool with yeah, that. Yeah. He's like, "Shady." let's not go overboard with this. I with mean, this, this white on. people hatred. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, um, you know, not to, I mean, obviously there are some issues Islamically with dogs and, you know, that's not really the main reason. I just right. find it, um, I just find it like a little bit odd um, that I you're mean, actually having, yeah. you have like a live animal in your house and you treat it like it's part of your family. It suggests to me a, a certain kind of um, projection yeah. that people are missing some kind of deep companionship and they make dogs into whatever that should or be. A, a
0: child, right? A child. I mean, it's yeah, is. basically it's, a child. Yeah.
1: And I was joking with my brother, like Sharif, like, I don't think. I got to think about what my deal breakers are in relationships and marriage, and you know, thinking about this next stage in my life. And I'm like, I actually think one of my deal breakers is someone who loves dogs. Hmm. That, that would actually be an issue, not because it would be. I could probably find a way to live with that if I if I fell in love with the person. But I think that it actually suggests a deeper a deeper divergence in values. Like if hmm. someone if someone put such a value on having basically a little human being in the house that isn't actually a child, that probably means that we're not on the same page intellectually or ideologically.
0: Okay. But like people can have normal human to dog relationships that don't involve taking him to clubs, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Is that, is it still a deal yeah, breaker? You have, know, you, look, have you ever met a woman that, 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 you know, it's, you know has a normal...
1: It is funny that I think there's also like a self-selection here, I, I, I self-selection bias in the sense that the people that I've dated generally have not been dog lovers. So I think I just gravitate to, towards people who are not dog lovers naturally. Yeah. So I think there's something there that's worth unpacking. But my brother was like, Shaddy, here you go again with your, he thought I was trolling him. Yeah. But then I got all serious. and I made a very strong intellectual case against dogs. Against dogs, yeah. And my parents were like, yes, my parents, I think, sided with me. Because hmm. they come, obviously, from a, from a culture where dogs were on the street. Yeah. So for them, it's still like a little bit unusual. Right,
0: right. Yeah.
1: Not that people can't become americanized over time, but I think there are limits to that process of americanization and one of them is something you know I I have found that it's still Arabs can be in the US for decades but generally speaking if they are immigrants it's hard for them to really get on board with the idea of having a dog inside of the house. I've quite quite seriously. I've seen it. It's it's quite rare in my in in my experience. Hmm. Anyway, this is all like a weird divergent from what we really should be talking about. And it, you know, it's funny because we we're trying to promote this podcast as entirely unscripted and raw. Yeah, and we take that seriously. But of course, generally generally speaking, before I actually meet up with you, Demir, we at least put out a topic
0: yes we, we well, don't sometimes, sometimes 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 we've we have gone into this somewhat cold right
1: yeah yeah but usually we at least like have some vague notion of the the topic area this time we don't really even have that i mean we did say let's talk about progress yes well which you did, wanted
0: to talk to me about progress and my lack of faith yeah, in it. yeah
1: which is but that's a pretty broad topic it is
0: and yeah very <laughs> so but i mean so here's the interesting one maybe here's a, a way to start thinking about it uh you mentioned that that uh, that charles king essay in yeah. foreign affairs um and <clears throat> i guess maybe the question should a better one would be is not like do i believe in progress uh i remember it was several months ago um me and my colleague Aaron, we interviewed uh, Branko Milanovic, the yeah. Serbian economist, and about his new book. And at one point, there's some some aside in the book where he talks about – I forget exactly, but we, we broached on it about like sort of views of history, whether um, one sees it as, again, sort of linear or cyclical, right? Well, I, I, I like the Charles King essay because it talks about decline and um, I don't know. Maybe that's just sort of uh, – a personality trait of mine that that you know i i i see decline in a lot of places and maybe that's what what makes me not a progressive but it's interesting like hmm. you can't you can't really think about decline unless you also imagine the opposite you, it can't be just perpetual decline like that's that's nonsense so i mean the question is is like are you a declinist am i a declinist is anyone a declinist who is who has a linear view of history i think not i mean unless you have some sort of idea that well, let me modify that. One might say that the sort of Catholic integralists think that there was an ideal society. It's all been downhill since then. The sort of like falling back from some kind of, you know. And also it's
1: Islamists and Salafis in this regard that the ideal moment in history mm. is the time of Prophet Muhammad. And sure, nothing right. can really aspire to those heights again. So everything in some sense is, um, is declined compared to that period. And, and that's why there's this idea obviously of the return to purity and all of that.
0: Well, yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely correct. I, I, I hadn't, yeah, no, of course I hadn't, hadn't for some reason that had slipped it, uh, slipped do mind.
1: Because you don't care about Muslims, Demir. You don't think about us. I don't, I
0: don't, I I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about these, (laughs) these things. No, but obviously that's true. But that's interesting, right? Like that's a kind of conservatism that actually I have no time for. That's, I mean, it's like in a, in a smaller version of conservatism is like a dumber version is like, oh, the 1950s were great. And then it's like, you know, it's all been downhill like that. That's a certain kind of like not very reflex- reflective kind of conservative set of ideas, right? Well, your
1: position is sort of that nothing was really great. There is no ideal
0: right. well, that gets s- society to, the to
1: strive for. Well,
0: maybe, maybe that's right. I mean, but it's also in- inherent in that as a kind of cyclical view of history also, right? Yeah. Is that, that, I mean, it's, I i it does feel somehow sometimes that there's sort of a finite amount of misery in the world, and you know you you can shuffle that around in different ways, and you know improve life perhaps, but you know you're not going to transcend that misery. I mean, I think that's sort of a a bedrock belief of mine, especially when I think about foreign oh. policy and things like that. Have, have like, you is hmm. that
1: did you just did you come up with that on your own? Because I actually haven't heard that before. Which is one? that a new idea?
0: No, not really. I mean, as, especially on foreign policy, that's, that's been, that's how I look at oh, things. Oh, I know and, that you, but I oh. mean, like,
1: is it Demir's creation or, or are you drawing? Cause I mean, that's actually sound, that sounds very fresh to me. It's similar actually to something that our friend, um, Samuel Goldman, professor at GW political theory, was saying on Twitter the other day that there's, um, there's a finite amount of religiosity in the world that is constant. It's mm. the only thing that changes is how it's distributed and how people express this innate religious longing. So, some people can express it in secular ways, they can suppress it, they can do drugs, sex, other ways to express what's missing. Mm. But it's always there and just a question of how societies try to order. What is a constant source of religious feeling? You're saying something similar. Yeah. that there's always a misery is constant. It's just redistributed in 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 interesting ways over time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I you know I, I'm surprised that you're saying that's somehow original. I've never thought of it as original. Timir, I'm
1: just trying I'm just trying to hype you up here. I appreciate
0: it. <laughs> but again, you know, nothing's original. That's the other. That's the other sort of uh, anyway. But but. Yeah, right. That sounds right to me. And so, you know, it's it's um,
1: okay. Let me push you, Demir, because I mean, I want to turn the tables on you a little bit because usually you're the one who's pushing me. Go on. Uh, (laughs) But so we were on our group chat with some some of the best and brightest. Mm -hmm. You know, actually, I think that uh, the group chat should be retitled, renamed to the best, the best and brightest. Um, let 's do now it's just called Politbu- Politburo yeah, uh, nice Soviet reference there, but of course, best and brightest is um is meant ironically because because
0: we 're not that bright
1: and also the best and the brightest oftentimes you know fuck things up, um, sure. but putting that aside um, so uh but we were talking about the idea of progress and you, and how I think me and a couple other people in the chat were saying that as uncomfortable as we are with some of the woke excesses, there is some optimism to be had in the sense that things might actually get better once we start addressing mass incarceration, police abuse, that there is actually, there is something to be positive about, and there are actually ways to significantly improve the lives of black citizens. And you were skeptical, and it gets... Back to something we were talking about last time, the politics of symbolism, that you, st- you still see a lot of this as symbolic performance. But even so, even if that's partly true, there still is this sense that people are getting better on core issues. Like the, the, um, the popular sentiment and public opinion polling on mass incarceration has moved, in my view, in a better direction where more Americans realize that this is a fundamental problem and more policymakers are open to doing something about it. Where I think your response was that um, we've tried so many things over the past five, six decades, um, including with the Great Society, with various programs, affirmative action. Um, You didn't say that specifically, but that's one of them. And there's also programs like Head Start addressing, uh, you know, addressing issues around um, integration, busing, things like that. Um, that were attempted in the you know 70s and so on, different programs of urban renewal. Um, even public housing originally was meant to be a constructive thing. And then we saw the dark side of public housing. So I think your position, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the stickiness of that, there, there's a sort of tragic stickiness of bad situations, especially when there's a cycle of poverty and inequality that makes it actually very difficult to improve the lives of black Americans. Um, And I think one example also in something I read before I came here, Walter Russell Mead had an article uh, where he mentions that um, the racial, uh, the racial inequality gap has remained constant and maybe in some ways has even gotten worse from the 1960s onwards so, despite all of our good intentions, we can't actually apparently make improvements on these key issues, and I think that's where your sense of the tragic comes from.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I um, how to be how to be precise about this again, and this gets back to the question: like I'm not saying progress is not possible. You can't make lives better. There's there's a lot of things that one can unpack here. I, I do think that um, okay, so many ways to unpack it. American policing's weird. It's an outlier in a lot of ways. Um, you look at how policing's done in other countries. Yeah, look, it's 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 violent in a lot of ways, especially for out communities and and African Americans are the out community in America and have remained for all sorts of reasons. Um, but still you look at the statistics and it's, it's off the charts. How, how, how different, how, how much more we jail people, how, um, how, how, how nasty our pathologies are. My feeling is that, um, for all the reasons that you cited, including Walter's really good article, which you didn't mention is actually uh, about a book on reparations. Yes. Um, that uh I
1: think it's called From Here to Equality, that's which right. is a good title.
0: That's right. Um it's 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 striking how what I see happening right now is again, a lot of this sort of symbolic warfare. Um and the sort of core conviction I see in people is well, if we just change enough minds about this sort of stuff, uh, we'll get at the we can we can get it at serious sort of um, proper solutions to this. Why I am skeptical by and large is not just that like we've tried a lot of sort of policy, because there's many other policies that we try and and you know it's it's quite possible that you know we can. Pull ourselves out of this sort of, you know, uh, really uh, different from other countries policing trends that that we have, and I I I, I just feel like a lot of these things are embedded and and linked to other things. This is why I, I come back to the question: why I I am and was more optimistic about sort of the Bernie and Liz approach to these questions because they're bigger and more holistic and talk about it and why I'm so still down on what's happening with this woke stuff. There's a really good article. I could look it up right now, but maybe you can uh, conjure it up uh, by this woman in tablet that talked about the sort of self-help nature of a lot of this stuff. Um, After I'm done talking, I can look it up or put it in the show notes in any case, but just talks about how how so much of this movement, or at least sort of the, the outward manifestations of it are like if only I change how I perceive these things, that work on, on improving myself will then radiate out into society and change society. Um, maybe maybe it's 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 too glib of me to be scornful of that as being too simplistic. And maybe as you say, as also some other people on the group were saying, it's like, well, you know, like awareness is being raised, that ain't nothing. That's going to motivate different kind of politics, and you gotta start somewhere. I'm open to that. I'm just, I'm deeply skeptical of it for all the reasons that, um, that I just have this feeling that, that, you know, uh, the, the, the reasons that we have the kind of, uh, society we have doesn't just boil down to ill feelings, uh, and bigotry towards African Americans. And, um, I, and furthermore, I, it's, it's, I think the legacy of slavery is more complicated than just the 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 bigotries of individuals.
1: You know, so on that. You know, it's interesting that when you were talking about this idea of you you change awareness on the individual level, this idea of personal spiritual improvement, which is the Robin DeAngelo model in her book White Fragility. Mm-hmm. This idea that if we all do our part as individuals, and I shouldn't say we because I'm it's directed to white people. Yeah, right. And I'm I uh, well. Yeah. <laughs> but if we all do our part, then this will kind of filter up the individual mm-hmm. changes, then the community changes, then society changes. And perhaps the theory of change there is that eventually, if you have enough individuals who have changed their their level of spiritual awareness, then there can be a sort of spir- spiritual change at, on the on the mass level, and therefore on the policy level, which reminds me, of the Muslim Brotherhood's model mm. of change this idea that if individual egyptians or arabs or muslims more generally would just return to the faith on their own then they can build better families and then better families can build better communities it's it's a very it's it's a certain way of looking at how long term change happens of course in their case it didn't work it didn't actually work out it turns out it's very difficult to change societies that way um, because state power is its own, has its own logic, and is in some ways its own monster. Um, so you can have you can have a nation of good natured, well intentioned individuals, but not have actual structural policy change. And I think that's the core weakness of the Robin D'Angelo model. Um, so you know, I'm I'm with you on that. Um, but you know, and this is where I, I wonder. Let's say that Liz. Uh, you know, I guess we're on a first name basis are, where they're yeah. Liz and Bernie. If one of them had won, one of them had become president. I wonder, so that would have actually potentially at least led to deep structural change. I like this idea of, you know, a massive redistribution program where you give specifically poor and just lower, lower class, maybe lower middle class people, um, you know, not reparations because it wouldn't be reparations. It would just be a certain kind of um, payment because I I don't like the idea of where if you have a reparation system and you give whatever it is, $50,000 or $250,000 different figures on this for a family. um, And if it's a black family that's upper class, it just seems odd to me to think that they would need um, $250,000 when that could be, you know, so that's also where, This sort of, um, you know, I'm not exactly a socialist, but to me, it seems obvious that you wouldn't want to give the same amount of money to rich black people as you would give to poor black people. But maybe that's just me. But let's say you did have this deep structural approach to inequality. Do you believe that if Bernie had his ideal program and instituted it, would that lead to, quote unquote, progress
0: um, it would lead to change. Look, but why I, wouldn't that be progress? Well, so look, I, the other, the other question that comes of this is, um, I, I'm not sure I have a definitive opinion on it, but it's an interesting one, uh, which is when we talk about models and cycles of these sorts of things, um, and maybe then this is an argument for, you know, the woke revolution, um, even if if uh, I'm skeptical about it, but maybe the way progress is done is that it only happens with proper revolutions and refoundings. Um, that actually incremental change always is a process of decay and patching, but never actually a big big enough change. And I have, arguably, that's part of the the argument that that you know the real revolutionaries believe. Now, again, um, how many real revolutionaries do we have among among this? I don't know. Maybe that's, a, that's an interesting question. It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, I, I actually just before you came, I, I went back, uh, and then I realized it's too long and sort of uh, too hard to to skim without uh, a little bit more prep. But it's it's um, I've seen several people reference Book Eight of Plato's Republic, talks about sort of the decline, you know, from timocracy yeah. to oligarchy to democracy to tyranny, right? Um that sort of uh decline in each one of those you know to a certain extent includes a revolution right uh as as one changes from one to the other it is sort of a revolutionary but it's a revolutionary decline so i don't know there's many ways to sort of skin this cat but i i do wonder i do wonder you know that's a it's a fair point to say like if if Bernie had gotten everything um as opposed to uh you know the maximalist uh I'm not even going to say Black Lives Matter because, like, the maximalist sort of, like, woke manifesto, if such a thing exists. But, you know, let's say that, that like, you get this kind of revolutionary social change that um, I think uh, embedded in it is a certain kind of uh, anti-markets, you know, uh, self-loathing about Western civilization as a colonialist, violent, expropriating everything and then you 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 found some some new sort of society after all the sort of uh, um, reckoning is done uh, whether that's you know a refounded society and whether that's that's a proper new start that you can start building on I don't think the revolutionaries have thought all this through but it's not necessarily on the revolutionaries to think everything through. It's not like during the French Revolution they had figured everything out as they were going on. I mean, it, it had its own internal logic. Um, but also, I mean, uh,
1: almost by the very nature of, of America and the American idea, we're never going to have enough revolutionaries to have a revolution. I think that's what people sometimes lose sight of because um, because our system is actually pretty good at adapting and responding to revolutionary demands if enough people have them. So Mm -hmm. in this case with the BLM movement, we already see the co-option of of a lot of that, at least symbolically. And and I think that when we're talking about um, the elite upper-class educated Americans who are at the vanguard of the woke movement, honestly, I don't think they're actually comfortable with deep, structural change in economic or class terms, because they're a product of a society that for them would be at least somewhat classless. I mean, the very fact they were able to rise to the upper middle class or upper class and that they're New York Times staffers. I mean, I just, I, I have trouble. There's something silly about the idea of New York Times staffers playing the role of revolutionaries.
0: No, I agree. Um, I, I 100% agree with that. But I mean, let's you know separate that out. This, that's where my scorn for the current moment comes from, because I do think that it's superficial, that uh, while there might be true revolutionaries among uh, Black Lives Matter who have a vision of truly revolutionary change, um, most of the sort of woke nonsense is just like a a certain kind of virtue signaling, a certain kind of belief in change that is superficial and starts with transforming the individual. I'm very skeptical of that model of change. It's interesting to me, though, is like, again, going back to Plato and chapter uh, book eight in the Republic, right, is that is the question of, you know, I guess that that shift from oligarchy to democracy. Right. And and in book eight, the the concept of democracy is is not Republican democracy. It's 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 equalism of a certain sort. It's a leveling. Um, and uh and Plato sees us as uh, as decline, right? As as a, you know, a revolution that leads to a worse kind of society. Um, I, I'm not sure how you know the how one then thinks about what like a successful you know Bernie presidency. Uh, whether that leads us to basically just tweaks to the system that are healthy hmm. and improve. And I think that's what would happen because Bernie would get blocked on a lot yeah. of this stuff. And I think that's what would happen, as opposed to the maximalist demands of the sort of, you know, the woke, that if their revolution and they've managed to refound the project in some profound way, I uh, I think that would be, uh, you know, uh, a decline. But I don't know. You know, I mean, that's the thing. I was getting in sort of dumb. Pissy fights on Twitter. Every time someone mens- mentions the French Revolution, it trigger- triggers me because uh I don't know. I it obviously it's complicated. And <laughs> on on Twitter it's it's particularly easy. How to would be, you
1: sum up the legacy of the French Revolution in two or three sentences? One
0: sentence, right? It's too early to tell. You know that famous <laughs> <Yes>. one. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: It's still it's still a good one. No, I don't know. You know, I I uh I the the main thing for the French Revolution. I, I do kind of think that is that you know what what sets the Anglo world apart. Um, the Glorious Revolution wasn't really a revolution in England, and and the American Revolution wasn't really a revolution, um, despite despite you know uh, uh, the rhetoric of a lot of it. It's very different from what the French Revolution was, and that's very different from what then racked the continent in Europe, which you know. Uh, there is a, a, a line from the French Revolution to the Russian Revolution and then to all the other sort of you know hard left wing things and and it's at the same time the the Anglo ones are are, are profoundly different things different beasts. Um, I think you know there, there's an element of of uh, cultural propensity to religion in Anglo cultures that. Uh, shapes these things in a very different way than they happen in uh, on the continent uh, there's something profoundly you know, well I guess the French Revolution also has this sort of crazy moment when they you know start I forget what it is, the creator or the, the great being, I forget what, what Robespierre starts talking about at some point but it's um, uh, it's, 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 it's grounded in a kind of ra- like hyper rational secularism which none of the Anglo ones are Um, and I, I, it's, you know, when I'm being glib on Twitter and arguing about this, it's, it's to preserve that. It's that the, the Anglo American experiment and what it's yielded, uh, is different from just sort of run of the mill revolutionary stuff that happened on the continent. And I think that now, you know, it's hard to talk about, uh, democracy on the European continent without acknowledging that, you know, uh, the roots of it ultimately are in these, in these convulsions of, of 1789. Um, but there's, uh, there's a lot of bad that came from that. Um, a lot of chaos, a lot of really interesting history. Um, but I can't, I can't, I can't get myself to the point of glib enthusiasm when people start saying, well, the French revolution, liberated the people and, you know, deposed the aristocracy and therefore it's the good. Um, And then when people then turn around and say, well, clearly the shortcomings of the American revolution is that like it didn't go far enough and wasn't egalitarian enough. Now, yeah, you know, uh, Jefferson was a slaver. A lot of them were like Adams was was one of the the few (laughs) the few good founding fathers in a lot of ways. However, he was an aristocrat too, or at least like had a very aristocratic sort of approach to these things. I don't know, you know, it's 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 a very complicated thing, but it's I, I it really gets my back up when um people start praising the French Revolution in the way of an early French revolutionary, um, and don't really grasp in which ways the Anglo version of all of these things is infinitely superior. And it has a lot to do with the, the, the whole question of what is a revolution.
1: Yeah, and I think there there's there's an Anglo propensity towards prudence mm. even in times of like the revolutionary, revolutionary ferment. I mean, I, I, guess, and, and maybe, I would have to kind of think through this a little bit more, but it gets to something we were talking about in another group chat, which is why, why is there something distinctive about the American commitment to either religion? And I don't mean necessarily organized religion, but uh, but religious belief or a belief in something transcendent, which can lead to utopian overreach. But in this particular case, it seems to be blunted because there's some kind of God conscious structure. I, I don't know. I mean, there there seems to be something there that distinguishes it from, as you said, the hyper secular rationalism of the french revolution, revolution which, without God um, and with only reason, turns into something quite destructive
0: yeah yeah i'm not, i 'm not, I'm not even close to feeling able to answer what that is i mean' I, I've, uh, in that group chat where you 're mentioning i mean it's like i 'm I'm, I'm spending a lot more time recently uh, reading about English history in particular. Uh, even before sort of getting into into uh, deeper dives in some of this American stuff. But it, it's, um, oh, man, I'm blanking on the name. Um, it's one of the, the theoreticians of, uh, um, of nationalism. Uh, bear with me. I'm going to actually find this because it's okay. important. Um, she makes the case that... Uh, Come on, Kindle, get out of my way. She makes the case that um, nationalism. Okay, Damir, you know what I just forgot about? Tell me.
1: We said that we were going to have a live audience and a, like, like a person sitting on that couch. We said that Joffer would sit on that couch. Hold on, fr- before
0: you do that, let me just fix that that <laughs> clicking thing that's also driving me insane. We'll edit this part. <laughs>
1: I mean, so for those of you who can't see us now, which I guess is all of you, there is a couch there and you probably fit three people on it with social distancing, maybe two. But a friend of ours, Jaffer, um, he, he's a fan of the podcast and he was talking about like he could be part of this like one person live audience. And not necessarily heckle us, although I suppose he could. But he could like laugh and make noises. I guess we'd have to have a mic for him.
0: No, I've got mics. You know, I've got mics. Yeah,
1: or you know, he could be the kind of that person who's like the hype man. Yeah. Um, he doesn't actually
0: like laughs at our
1: jokes. (laughs) Like he wouldn't have to like contribute substantively. Although I guess he could if he really wanted to. But it sort of reminds me of like the woman who's on the Howard Stern show. She doesn't actually engage that much in a substantive way. But she just sort of like offers color commentary in real time. Racist.
0: She's black, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Leah Greenfield is the name of the, the, the of Howard- nationalism, the nationalism oh, oh. theoretician that I was talking well, like, about.
1: I'm, I'm pretty sure that Howard Stern's person on the show is not named Leah Greenfield. No,
0: no. It's called Robin. Uh, oh, Robin. Yeah. Her name yeah. is Robin. Right. Yeah. Right. It's true. Did you listen to Howard Stern back in?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah I did, no, actually. I did, too. I did, too. It's Um, a bummer that he went, I mean, this is actually like an interesting, I think about this sometimes, why someone who has so much mass influence and is able to be part of a national conversation through his show would like voluntarily decide to like defang himself yeah. In, in in terms of influence by signing an exclusive contract with Sirius and now only people who have that subscription can listen to him. It's just like really interesting. And someone was making this comment or maybe I read it somewhere. About
0: Joe Rogan, right? Oh, yeah. That was a oh, difference. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. That that um you know if you tell someone under thirty about Howard Stern they're like, wait, what? I mean, we vaguely heard of him, but we've never heard any of his shows. So he's really declined in national relevance. And it's just like an interesting thing about what do we value having a model where we reach a smaller number of people who are dedicated to us by virtue of a subscription or something like that? Or, or do we go for the mass audience at the expense of, say, like monetary bliss?
0: Yeah, well, Is I mean, it- he cashed out, right? Uh, howard stern, stern. Yeah. yeah he cashed out and i mean the, the criticism of him now is that he cashed out too early and he, he left a lot of money on the table yeah which is yeah. what you see with joe rogan's deal on on spotify
1: yeah it's but interesting then, yeah. but then the
0: question is is like whether joe rogan screwed up too i mean that has been a lot of the criticisms right that if he had managed his own stuff and not gone to spotify and they gave him a bunch of cash up front but uh you know he no longer well i don't know the the specifics of his deal and i don't listen to joe rogan so i don't actually know <laughs> but like but there's some Talk that you know, if you he stayed open, and yeah, he could have monetized, he could have kept most of that money himself. And if they're willing to pay him whatever hundred million dollars and they their valuation up went like what like two billion or something, I don't know, some crazy, yeah, yeah. Uh, clearly, some, some something's wrong there,
1: but it's like this perpetual dilemma of like, do we want to be like, do we want to be on the indie level or do we want to become like you too, like in podcast you? terms, like, yeah, so, so. You know, and it, it also relates to the questions that we're asking about our own lives and the post COVID era and how we want to spend the time that we have left in this world. Not that we're I mean <laughs> I mean no. Do you have COVID, Shadi? Are you tell,
0: are you telling me you've got COVID and you're
1: you're here in my no, but, apartment? You no, know, if you're contending, you know, we we we've thought I think we've all thought about death a little bit more and what kind of legacy we want to leave in this world mm-hmm. and what our, what our signature will be. And my, you know, my dad, I was talking to my dad about this, you know, how does one leave a a signature and you, you have to at some point, you know, focus on, on, you know, children, you know, not to go totally off track here, but children, children, dogs, and then we'll be back to Leah Greenfeld again. It's totally fine. Go on. Keep going. You know, I guess, I guess I'm torn at this point in my life where, I part of me wants to have a more talk to a smaller group of people who are part of a niche community, but part of me also wants to have impact because I do want to see things change. And I do want ideas that I think are important to have a mass audience. I guess it's just like, we all deal with this if we're writers, if we're, you know, this is, uh, and I think about like my favorite bands, And the whole, like, should they go for the major label? I guess it's not as relevant as it was in the 90s and 2000s, where if you got a major label deal, you're like, oh, wow, you know, now we can reach the masses with our music, where I think that's, you know. Also,
0: I I, I played in bands, you know, and like, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up. There's, um. So do you know does the word does the name Steve Albini mean anything to you? Oh yeah, yeah. He's the, he's
1: the, the engineer or producer for Nirvana who yeah. has that special style of having right. like
0: PJ the, Harvey too, like PJ Her- Harvey's first record, The Breeders. Oh uh, yeah, The
1: Breeders too. Yeah, but he had the mics placed in a spe- in certain ways in in the recording room to get this sense that that the listener is almost there, yeah. like listening in. Right. I
0: mean, the thing is, like Steve Albini's stuff is is. Um, uh the drums you can always tell like a Steve Albini record oh, cuz okay, the, the drums are like overpowering huh. and it's it has that like feeling of like you're actually at a concert where the drums are often overpowering i mean it depends how the concert's mixed but it's like if you're in a room with a band it's just like the drums are and he is like he's he'd always like that's if you listen to the first breeders record pod or the first pj harvey record um uh or the pixies uh yeah. first it's like the drums are like you know and especially comparing later on of course, with the Nirvana, it's reversed. the The breakout hit was Nevermind, and that's really slickly produced. And then but their
1: first album was Bleach, right? Sure, that's not Steve Albini. Oh, that's Albini, not Albini. Okay. Albini did
0: the last one. Oh, in, in they, utero. In utero. That's right. And it's because uh, you know they 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 idolized and they loved him because they came from that scene. And finally, I mean, Kurt Cobain fought the the labels in a big way. To get to allow them to do Steve Albini's thing, the fascinating thing about *In Utero* again, I mean, this is not getting deep holes for the for the <laughs> for our uh, for our audience, but you know, like that the if you go listen to it, there's like two or three songs that sound very different on *In Utero*, and those are the ones that the label was so horrified with what Albini had done with the record uh, that they demanded that like two of them be remixed so they can have a you know something they can put on the radio oh right yeah because
1: there weren't really any radio hits on that yeah. album but also I think that basically what Kirk Cobain was trying to do was he was giving the middle finger to he gets big with uh they get big with Nirvana with um uh whatever that, <laughs> never mind yes <laughs> never mind yeah. never mind yeah. and uh and that's their breakthrough they become huge popular all that and he reacts against that in this and he feels almost repelled by his own fame and then he says basically fuck you to the listeners with the subsequent album and it makes me think that sort but of But not to
0: the listeners. I love that subsequent album. I mean, I but mean But it wasn't so, as
1: popular and it doesn't have as many anyway. But Yeah, yeah, but, right. You know, but
0: it gets at what we're talking about. But go on. Yeah. Yeah, and
1: in some ways, you know, I was just thinking about this that um Ta-Nehisi Coates is the Nirvana of writers that he got really big and you could always tell with Ta-Nehisi that he was he wasn't comfortable with the new status that was imparted upon him. He didn't like being feted and celebrated especially by predominantly white audiences. So there was always this kind of contentious relationship that he had mm-hmm. with his own burgeoning fame. And now I think we see, you know, that he's in a sense he decided quite consciously as far as I can tell to retreat and he's not as present in the moment. Sure. And he's doing his own passion projects and he got off Twitter and he just doesn't want to deal with all that, but it's, you know, and I, Pearl Jam may be a similar in some regards too. that after their fame um, with their first uh, two or three albums in the nineties, they decided to, they had a niche audience. They stayed with that, but they never got as big again, even though everyone knows the name Pearl Jam, just as everyone will know the name Ta-Nehisi
0: Coates. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting parallels in a lot of this, like, uh, you know, Pearl Jam sort of became then a touring band and they became sort of like a cult touring band. Not, not quite like the Grateful Dead, but I think I following in a lot of those sort of footsteps of like having a cult following and they tour and, you know, Pearl Jam tours are a big deal. Um, back to Steve Albini though. He wrote, I remember this. So Steve Albini is like a godfather of a lot of, you know, he was like in, in this eighties band, this like punk rock band, really abrasive. Uh, his production style is really abrasive yeah. though, notorious in a lot of ways. And he had started his own label, uh, sorry, not his own label, his own studio in Chicago called Electrical Audio. That's still there, I think. Um, and he wrote, uh, I think it was like Maximum Rock and Roll Zine. He wrote a, a, an essay called, like some of your friends are already this fucked. Mm. And it was about signing to major labels and about the sort of, you know, the attractions of it, the money up front. But he he, he lays out, I think in, in, in really good um, detail about like how the, the game is rigged if you decide to play the game along the the lines of, you know, getting fame. And that's sort of this this ongoing thing that I think goes through the 90s in a lot of ways. A lot of the bands that I was, really into um you know some of them went major and turned to crap and then became irrelevant some like stuck to their guns and you know like fugazi being the most famous one dc's own fugazi like they stuck to their guns and and, uh you know great success like incredible integrity uh really great albums but you know they're ian MacKay lives in in mount pleasant he's not a rich man right now Oh, he still lives in dc yeah yeah yeah, can we hang out with him we could, we could have him on the show. We oh my God, that, that would should, actually be amazing. <laughs> we should try and find Ian. I don't know. I, I, I'm i sure we can figure out a way to get to him. And like, he'd be really interesting to talk about well, what's going on right now.
1: Well, I mean, you have some cred because your band actually got somewhat well known. No,
0: no, no. But, but so my band, like, uh, not really at all. But the interesting thing is like in Baltimore, like when we were, you know, I was playing in these bands and stuff like that. Um, it was really interesting uh, of our sort of cohort of bands, uh, Oh, it's hard to say. Like, there's a, a good number of them. Some people went and, you know, uh, the really talented musicians ended up joining like super successful bands. But of like our tight cohort, one really made it, you know? Um, made it in the sense that like gotten like a real label with like tour support and got to actually, you know, uh, tour the country. For me, who were they? Uh, this uh, is my friend, uh, Roman Keebler, and he uh, started with a band called Roots of Space Travel, which was great, uh, and then his band was uh, called The Oranges Band. And, uh, you know, again, this is what I'm, we're talking about, like the scale of making it, but they were on uh, Lookout Records at first, uh, which is like a San Francisco punk rock label, and then uh, I'm trying to remember if, what, I mean, that's like, that was one of those labels that was sort mm-hmm. of indie, but then ended up more, um, uh, connected. And I I remember one of their songs, like, I think made it like MTV and was like in a car commercial for Christ's sakes, you know, and that's like making it. But it was interesting. It's like, you know, it became a lot more professional for Roman and his band. And, you know, as he tried to do it, a lot of the original members were like, you know, can't do the touring. I mean, it's all the sort of stuff that sort of happens. And so I, I think Roman made some great records. It never went like super, super major, but it was interesting. Um, for me never like there was not even an option to go go that pro. I really enjoyed just doing music for its own sake and hanging out with my friends and doing music. I thought that was super super important and I still to this day it was like one of those great joys was like I would go with my friends and we'd play music to practice, you know, and like write songs and then we'd play shows and maybe we'd play a couple of shows out of town. And that was all I really wanted out of it, and it was super meaningful, and sure, yeah, like we we actually had our songs played on BBC once or twice, and that was like the the height of what we managed to do, Wait, we're- yeah, like John Peel's show, John Peel's on oh, like, on Radio four like uh playlist mean, I forgot you were on John Peel, no, we weren't we didn't do a peel session, he didn't invite us to like fly us to London or anything like that we weren't that big, but like you know John Peel would you'd send him records and he would play them. And so, you know, once you got played on Peel, that yeah. was for like our level of crappy little band was super, super gratifying. Look, this is a long, <laughs> long side. But all I'm getting at is like for me, um, I always took uh, that Steve Albini thing to heart about uh, doing it for the love of what you're doing it for. And then success may follow. I mean, the, I bring up Roman and, and the Oranges Band as actually a really interesting hybrid thing because they they made it pretty far and Roman like did it for the love of the thing, but he also tried to make sort of a career out of it. Um, and it's, it's uh, I think it's just important that you follow it as much as it, it, it matters to you and do it for the right reasons and not worry about like making it. Because if you're doing it for the right reasons and you're totally passionate about it, you will make it. Maybe you won't be like, you know, you too, but fuck it. Who cares? Like ultimately I, I, that's, I, I stick, I stick to those guns. You know, I think people that try and be you too, usually fail being you too. And, uh, you can just try and be the best of what you are and what you're trying to do and do the best job at that as possible. Not worry about like trying to be fucking Bono.
1: No joke, man. That's actually like really good advice that applies to a lot of things. And these are issues that I think we all struggle with. So I know, I, I, you know, it sounded like it was a lot about music, but actually I think listeners should really take what Demir said to heart because I need to take that to heart. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid of losing sight of why I do what I do and sometimes I'm reminded of it. So when someone sends me, it could be someone I've never, I don't, I've never talked to before, just a a random tweet who says, listen, Shadi, you know, um, what you do is meaningful to me and it's connected with me and it's changed how I see something in a particular way. And that gives me a certain level of gratification that you know, um, having, uh, a hundred thousand eyeballs on some like random article I wrote in two hours. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's different things that you value. Um, and, but, you know, there are a lot of grifters out there who I think, you know, they lose their integrity in our space in terms of, you know, uh, maybe doing things for, not for the ideas but for the fame or the attention and you know uh not to name names in this regard right but you know uh uh you know but there's also people who are like really legitimate like Tim Snyder the the Yale historian who I think unfortunately in some of his more recent stuff is just like writing you know silly pamphlets for the masses and indulging, indulging their worst instincts. But, you know, so it is a sort of, um, you know, it is this question of how we get the balance right. And I think that what we're doing here, and I, you know, I never like to get self-serious, but I, I do sort of see this, I guess, Demir, what you're trying to say, like, this is, this is our version of recording something with Steve Albini, Right. Is that the metaphor you're going for? Well,
0: the metaphor is more like it's more like <laughs> I enjoyed doing this, like I enjoyed playing with my band. I never, we never even got like to the point where we could, you know, uh, get our act together enough to, to, um, uh, you know, gather our money to go to Chicago to record with Steve Albini, because Steve Albini will record anyone. But no, it's it's actually it's even it's even more basic than that. I I you know we have we have a, a box that we're speaking into here. We're doing it ourselves. And that's what I love about it. It's like totally DIY it's what's really fun about, about doing this sort of stuff. It's hanging out with friends and, 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 and putting out something that, you know, seems valuable to me. And that's, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the, the biggest part of it. I mean, Um, what
1: we're trying to say Domino's pizza is that if you try (laughs) to sponsor us with your corporate dollars, we won't
0: turn you down. (laughs) We will say yes, but we will still record it just like this. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, look, so, uh, Dogs, uh, freedom. Wait, do we gotta do this whole like extra 15? Oh,
1: wait, okay. So, because we started this Patreon and the first tier, I think that people get an extra 15 minutes It's sort of meant to be a podcast within the podcast. How do we do that, Demir? Do we, do we have to actually announce that and do like a natural stop then continue or?
0: Well, the beauty is now you're teasing it for the people who haven't. Oh, been. wow. They're going to, Oh, they so are going to feel gonna so, so jealous and left out. Oh man. Because in like maybe five more minutes we will stop and then start recording oh, again. My, oof, podcast FOMO. Yeah. Podcast FOMO. Anyway, look, I, I, it's, I, it's, I think it's, it's, just to to wrap up that little uh, curly cue after we're going from you know political decline into into you know what whatever the hell we're doing um yeah i i uh i do think i feel i feel pretty good about like you know uh throwing out the patreon and and seeing if you know if people if if it resonates with people i mean again the feedback on um uh on twitter is always super super gratifying when people like hear something and connect. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, uh, just sort of like throwing out Patreon if people are, are willing to sort of support what we're doing, that's super gratifying, but it feels, it feels legit and right in the way that like, again, sort of doing an indie or like punk rock, uh, record feels right. Cause you're doing it cause you care about it. And then if people want to sort of buy and support it, awesome. Otherwise, you'd still do it anyway.
1: Yeah, because this is actually like literally who we are. I mean, like uh, people might not believe it, but but we're for the most part, maybe sometimes we do, but for the most part, we're not putting on airs. We're not actually performing uh, like this is me and Demir hanging out.
0: Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I feel like I want to close the loop on Leah Greenfeld though. So oh,
1: wait, wait. Remind
0: me who she is again. Oh, wait, that's why we're talking about religiosity and the Brits. That's what I was. It was a religiosity in the Brits. Yeah. So, uh, so the interesting question <laughs> about this is uh, you're saying, uh, what is it about like the Anglo American tradition and temperance and things like that? What I liked about Leah Greenfeld's book is that she really posits um, uh, Britain as a First Nation, the First Nation state and the first concept of nationhood and that everything else is sort of like a reaction to that, uh, apart from the Americans who are sort of like a a splinter of that. Right. But it's that, that, you know, the French and then the French, the Germans are reacting to the French and that sort of German kind of nationalism springs up. And then ultimately the Russians are just also feeling left out and just sort of like this rolling wave. She doesn't really talk about the Chinese and what, how that's like playing out in Asia, but it's, it's, um, there is something different about the Anglo thing. um, I think if you, you take sort of like a a cultural view of the world, uh, progress again, which you also wanted to start this conversation on, it's, it's, um, it doesn't work in the way that I think revolutionaries like to think about it. I, I, I think that that's my takeaway from it. Like the, the notion of progress, I don't think I have like a good model of it, but it's certainly not one of, of, uh of improvement in the way that most people seem to think it is that, you know, if we only get a, a grip on ourselves, we can improve the world, uh, that the world operates in such simple moral categories, even though the good and like the sort of sane society and sane societal development is tied to very moral and religious things that are, I think, tied to the Anglo question. So I'll leave it at that. That's, that's how I'll, I'll tie up my, my little thing before we went on this big side.
1: Wow, yeah. That was that was a nice little loop we did.
0: Yeah, yeah. I that feel dizzy. Yeah. <laughs> it also
1: reminds me that I kind of like, to, I mean, not like we'll do a lot of this on the podcast, but it does, I mean, I love music and I, mm-hmm. I mean, I love and, um, you know, I don't know if you, how much we've talked about this. Actually, Demir, you might not remember this, but we were, um on the way back from Sonia and Jeremy's wedding,
0: The Kinks, I remember very yes, well. Yes,
1: we were in the car. I actually remember it so vividly. I was in the back seat, and I guess you were in the front. And um, we, a couple, I think there were like four or five of us in in the car. And um, Sonia and Jeremy, like uh, two of our good friends, like they got married in I think uh, April twenty seventeen. And this was actually when we were friends, but we weren't like close yet. And, you know, uh, and you put on the Kinks and I remember that I was like, oh, my God, these are like I I knew some of the, the more famous Kinks songs, but I didn't actually know some of the deeper cuts. And then I dove into that a little bit more afterwards. And ever since then, I've like I've come to a deeper appreciation of, of one of the great British bands. Yep. But um it was clear at that point early on in our friendship that you had, you know, rather good taste in music.
0: I, I, I wish I wish we could actually play music on this. That's one of those <laughs> things that really kills me about actually doing it. You know, you talk about having no budget and just sort of DIYing everything. Is cause you gotta license that stuff to play it. That's why, oh, really. That's why I do love doing the the cold open because you know it's 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 perfectly free and totally DIY. Oh, so if, if we
1: wanted theme music, we'd have to get like get a um, permission for that.
0: Well, I mean, if you there's there's websites where you can actually download uh, like canned uh, oh, okay. you know music and that's you know royalty free and the rest of this. But if we wanted to play a kink song, I don't know. There's there's like a couple of seconds that you can play, I think, and it's it's still fair use, but it's. You know, a couple of seconds is nothing. You wanna you wanna get into yeah, the sort of the yeah. deeper stuff on this. Anyway. Shadi, a pleasure <laughs> as always.
1: Yeah. Good to talk to you, Damir.
0: Yeah.